American Social History Podcasts are a production of the American Social History Project, Center for Media and Learning at the City University of New York Graduate Center. This talk was given at the Graduate Center. I would like to speak somewhat informally and broadly about the visual landscape of the Civil War and to also open us up to some discussion as we go as I put different images on the screen. Some of you are very familiar with this image, others probably are not. And But what we're looking at, of course, is a Winslow Homer image in June, June 29, 1861 in Harper's Weekly. What I want to talk about today is for us to just start thinking about the ways in which the Civil War fit or did not fit into existing modes of imagining and thinking about a visual world at the time of the Civil War. That is, what artists like Homer, writing only two months, or, or um, not writing, but making this image two months after the war began, what visual world he was drawing upon and how he might have transformed that at this point in the war, and also I want to look at later points in the war. So I think we, where I would like to start then is to think about what visual landscape was available at the time. And then also to think about, and this builds on what many of you have already been talking about, and many of you bring expertise to this issue, how the war transformed a visual landscape or didn't. And I think that should be an open question. We should not assume that the war was utterly transformative across all fields of visual imagining. On the other hand, I, I do personally believe that it was transformative in some areas or that it was transformative for a while in others, especially regarding race, for instance. And we could say that there was a regressive or slipping back in the way in which the war uh, and race were imagined after the war. So I want to think about the larger issue of the war as a transformative moment and to invite you to, to contribute to thinking about that. And I also want to think about the war as a crisis in meaning. And that, so today with the images I'll be showing and I'll invite commentary on some of them as we go through, I just want to introduce us to the broad landscape of visual imaginings during the war and to raise the question of how Americans would have dealt with what I see as a real crisis of meaning of the war, especially a set of crises that were caused by the incredible levels of death and destruction. A lot of you, I think this is interesting and this is a, a sidelight for the moment, how many people are, are interested in this room in thinking about the damaged body or the damaged landscape I think this is a, a really interesting trend that I see emerging in Civil War studies. And I know that people thinking about weirding the Civil War, Ella and I were talking about this, uh, Steve Barry's work and others, are really attempting to move what has been a fairly traditional field in a lot of ways. I think we could safely agree on that. If not fusty, uh, Civil War studies has sometimes been extremely fusty. I think that there are right now really interesting movements to break open this field in interesting directions. And I, what I'm hearing is that a number of people in the room are doing that work. So I feel as though I could really learn from you about that. But I think that the the question of the damaged body and the damaged landscape 
of the Civil War is really at the heart of a set of crises in meaning formation of the Civil War, and I want us to think about that as well, and you're going to think extensively about those. This is a, I think we could safely say, a pretty propagandistic image that Winslow Hormuz was creating at the start of the war. In some ways, it's didactic. It is telling women in the North, white women in the North, exactly what they should be doing. Not only is it a representation of what women were doing, but it's also a representation of what women should be doing. And yet there are probably fluidities. I like that term that Sarah Burns raised for us. There are probably fluidities in the meaning, even here in this image, that could be dissected. I won't be today. We'll probably <laughs> move on from this one. But this is a pretty clear-cut propagandistic image, it seems to me. And it reminds us that someone like Louisa May Alcott, at the beginning of the war, said in her journal, I've often longed to see a war, and now I have my wish. So many Americans responded to the war with that kind of enthusiasm. And I don't think it's so an accident that she says, I've longed to see a war. The desire to participate vicariously in the war was very strong, both North and South. And I think that the notion of a vicarious war is that one should, that we should take into our studies of the Civil War to think about the investment of home front civilians in imagining and seeing the war. They were, of course, the audience that fueled a vast publishing empire of images that ranged from books and broadsides and magazines, weeklies like Harper's Weekly that, that got up to well over 200,000 in circulation during the war, to trading cards, to all kinds of visual ephemera, a, an a bottomless pit, really, if you get into it. The, a, a, just a, an explosion of print culture at this time. But it's shocking, I think, in some ways, uh, as well as interesting, that Louisa May Alcott would have made such a statement to our modern sensibilities. I've often longed to see a war, and now I have my wish. It tells us everything we need to know, or at least it hints at it, about the naivete of the assumptions that civilians had going into the war, which included their sets of expectations about what war would look like, of course. Many of those expectations drawn from print culture they had seen already, sometimes attached to the Mexican War if they were old enough, but other prints from other wars, such as the Crimean War, etc. So let's move forward. A little bit of a close-up there. Here is Homer in 1867 and 1880. The Civil War, as you will learn much more, about for Homer is the defining event in his career that it takes him from a perhaps more stereotypical Harper's Weekly artist at the beginning of the war to something quite different by the end. Homer was one of a number of artists who during the war thought that, it, it, at least at the beginning, that war would be fun. And he created, he wasn't alone, trading cards that are much like today's baseball cards and that celebrated the glories and the fun of life in camp. So these fairly early wartime cards are part of a set of assumptions about what war would be like 
and what war would continue to be like. And indeed, many men did talk about the pleasures involved in life in camp. So here we have a selection of these. I'm hoping that these PowerPoints get sent to participants so if they just ever want to use it, right? Yeah, that's, that will happen, I'm sure. Here, still in the early phases of war, we have Homer's quite wonderful Christmas boxes in camp. This was a, a cover of Harper's Weekly at the time, January 4th, 1862. In some sense, we can say that the real fighting just hadn't begun at this stage of the war. And so it's relatively easy to continue a set of assumptions about the ways in which war is a delight, especially in camp, and we see Homer participating in that. And of course, the war was also to be fit within a whole set of meanings that I would think of as a kind of sentimentalism, a domestic sentimentalism, that emphasized the very tight linkages between home front and battlefront. And this is one of my favorite images from the early war, the soldier's dream of home. It's a Courier and Ives print, of course. And I think that it accomplishes a great deal of important work at the beginning of a war. What are wars about, after all, except for the destruction of bodies? Who destroys the most bodies? Who damages the most? They're, they're the winners. But this image, like so many images early in the war, covers up that reality, or that emerging reality, and it tells us something quite different. It tells us not that soldiers are killers, which is what they are, hired killers, but instead that this is a gentle, genteel man asleep in camp, and what is he doing? He's not in a homosocial environment with other men. He's not killing Confederates. He is instead simply thinking of home and dreaming of home. So the image accomplishes the task of making people on the home front feel that men who are soldiers have not turned into killers. They're still recognizable, understandable. They are domestic beings. They are sentimental beings. And uh, I think it's a, a very interesting image in the way in which we even get a bubble at the top uh, of his dream, his dream of home, and he is imagining returning home. He has his soldier's role on his back, so he's been to war, it, and he's kissing his wife. His little child is running toward him, and I think that what we see there is a, a whole narrative arc for the war being given to us, and it's a sentimental arc. Everything will be all right. Uh, he will come home safely, and home is what he is thinking of. Home and the battlefield are not, as they are in reality, separated, but instead they are profoundly linked through images such as this. Yes? Um, I'll venture one, one linkage, and that's the... In a book project I didn't talk about, I'm writing about the weaponized American and the prosthetic extension of the damaged body and um, looking at noble poems, like The Swamp Angel and other ones. But I love the fact that he's gently embracing his gun. Yes. And up above is another gentle embrace. Mm -hmm. And you have that crossing over of the domestic into the mm -hmm. martial. 
yeah. which is very dangerous and fascinating and something I'm looking at. Yeah, yeah, that's a very interesting insight. Yeah, it's, it's not, it's, it's there. The violence is, is muted, but it is there. And that is foregrounded, that rifle, uh, definitely. He's got a letter from his family, presumably, next to the rifle. So both things are going on at once. Really, I hadn't even thought about the landscape until, was it you? There's a couple of you were talking about landscapes of the Civil War, and I frankly had not thought about the landscape of this image. I've been so focused on the sentimental sentimentalism as the narrative here. But how interesting to open up our thinking about Civil War images to also think about the landscapes in which they are set. So let's move along. Another great artist uh, and a fantastic image, a sentimental image of the war. This was published in January of 1863, representing Christmas 1862. And again, we obviously, there are tight linkages between home front and battlefront in this sentimental depiction of the soldier and his relationship to his home. I think that we can all uh, realize that the Part of the sentimentalism here is that the wife and the husband face each other. The image is carefully constructed so that they are, although they're separated, they are facing each other in a very tender way. The soldier is reading a letter from home. So again, he's not battle, he's not a killer. He is connected to the home front. And there's a lot of fun to be had. It's a wonderful early Thomas Nast. We have the Santa Claus is both at home, coming down the chimney in the upper left, but Santa Claus comes to camp too. He's in the upper right. However, again, thinking about the slippages in images and how images always have more information than we can nail down right away, that they cannot be contained initially. I think that some of those slippages we see in the more somber uh, images that we have at the lower left and the lower right. We have battles in the lower left and the lower right. We have a graveyard suggesting that some soldiers do indeed get killed. However, Nast uh, then tells us the story that, well, if they do get killed, they certainly go to heaven. We have a direct path leading from the graveyard to the, literally the pearly gates. Um, and again, may I open this image up for those of you who have studied NAST and taught NAST, please. Well, I, I, Heidi. I know me, yeah, I know me NAST. It's pretty Homer expert But the image of the landscape and kind of vicariously participating in the war and also conventions that may or may not begin to be broken. And this image, you know, it almost looks like you're looking through binoculars or something. That yes, you know, yes. So vicariously participating. And also, I'm sorry to ask you to do this, but the there was the first image that you showed that was also Christmassy. Sure. Um, and even the one before, sorry. And even this, you know, it almost is outlined like like a stereograph almost. And you see kind of like this wreath up top, you know, it almost like, almost inviting you to kind of pin it on your wall. Yeah, very interesting. Yes, the, and I hadn't thought about the decorative qualities of this in that way either. David. Uh, the other image, I'm not so sure he's reading a letter. It looks like he might be Oh, yes, I think that's right. He's looking at a daguerreotype. Yeah, no, you're right. You're absolutely right. Yes? I, I like the observation that it looks like binoculars. Uh, 
Um, and I was thinking earlier that, that um, what Bill Fisher a long time ago called damaged social space is kind of healed. I mean, they're, they're put right next to each other, and you know that mm -hmm. there's a great distance, but there isn't mm -hmm. um, in the logic of the, the print. And I'm also thinking about um, other optical devices, stereo scope, and if, if yes, you think about how yes. you, that maps things over, you know, so if there's an awareness of that device in the mind of, you know, if we transport ourselves, yeah. if, if, the, if the looker into this image knows about a stereoscope, then there's that other way that your right eye and your left eye um, cross over and map onto the same space. So fascinating. that's there too. Oh, don't you think? I, I think that's fascinating that we have the, the different ways of joining these two unjoined images. So here is an example, of course, of how early in the war people might have imagined a battle to look. This early popular image of the Battle of Williamsburg, which is, of course, a very famous battle of the war. Not, of course, it's not at all. So this is a, a typical kind of image to have. There's an assumption that a, a battle like this would be an important battle, but it, but it was not. And I think that we can see, and again, I would rely on the art historians in the room, although I, I also other people, to think about the structure of this. But I find it interesting that we have a, a curve. The, the bodies on the left and the right are beautifully arranged so that we have this upward curve. We have the raised sword, which the, in the early war, Visual artists cannot resist having the raised sword, which we know, of course, is, is mostly nonsense at the time. We have a very awkward stance, it seems to me, or sitting posture of the general in charge who doesn't seem to be at all concerned about the Confederate soldiers coming right at him, but he's nobly urging his troops on. And all the, we can see that the lines move to a diagonal right uh, in this print. It's just a beautifully organized artificial image of what people thought battle was like. And so this is part of the visual language that people use, of course, when they start thinking about how to envision the war. Any comments on this before I move to the next? This is Homer's own depiction of a cavalry charge. This is in Harper's Weekly again. The War for the Union, 1862, a, a cavalry charge. And again, we don't see just one sword raised. Uh, Homer, <laughs> Homer goes for it. Everyone has their sword raised. That's, that's how you do battle. And we see a lot of similarities, it seems to me, between the previous image and the kinds of modes of visual imagination the traditional, what I would call traditional modes that are being inherited at the time of the war and what Homer is doing. Of course, on eBay, you can get images like this or, or elsewhere, flea markets, etc. So they are, continue to have an afterlife of uh, never in a whole volume anymore, but, but lifted out as something frameable. I don't really know much about how they were used in the home. Can someone else speak to that? There's a lot of knowledge in the room. Yeah, Josh. Well, uh, Harbors Weekly makes a big point in particular about these being inexpensive, um, inexpensive decorations for the home, or commemorative decorations yeah. for the home. So they they play that up, and then of course, lots of people then tint them to themselves and paint them themselves. It's, it's inexpensive, right? Home art. 
Right, right. So there's, yes. That mm. gas image that Kristen Seaborn was actually very popular, supposedly for soldiers. Um, you know, want something that they might Yes, right. And we should never assume that soldiers were immune to this art they, or this kind of imagining of the war. That's a really good point as well. Could you go back to um, previous one like decor, please? I don't know if it's the colors, because colors are lighter there. Um, there seems to be a sense of grace in this one. It's a little more chaotic in structure. It's true, and the shape of the bodies, the way they lay, there seems to be they seem to be much more graceful, much more formed. That's yes, Sarah. Very interesting. Well, I was just going to point out too. I mean, I think you're right about that. Um, the the previous print, um, you know, uses all the conventions of traditional history painting. You know, they're these heroic generals and dying, you know, martyrs in 18th century English history painting, you know, the Napoleonic Wars. Um, and what's interesting about what you said, uh, this one was all composed and, you know, like everyone's flying in the right place and, you know, the generals in the middle, you can't you know, miss him as, you know, the heroic leader. Whereas Homer, you know, as we'll probably be talking about later on, um, he comes out of a whole different uh, matrix in the sense of having trained as a lithographer, you know, he's doing popular art, and uh, you know, he's never even been to Europe at this point. And although he's probably seen engravings of famous history paintings, um, you know, he's, he's already grappling with that <coughs> crisis in representation that you know, we're told in the world. So even though there are heroes and swords, there's also you know, this kind of sense of imminent chaos and, you know, talking about the endurers or horsemen at some point. Maybe so. Yeah. Yeah. Tony. I like that we're comparing these two, and I see this one as more chaotic and flatter, actually. If you could go back to the, the other one, mm -hmm. I think. Um, we see a kind of a Renaissance triangle in both of them, the centrality of the officer. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But in the, in, the, in the first one, and do we know who did that one? I don't. I, I, probably people do, but... I, I see something that I've, I'd like that you mentioned. There's a kind of stasis in this one, mm -hmm. um, an ignorance of space. Um, and, and I see something that might migrate, ironically, from American landscape painting, especially Thomas Cole, who made many of his paintings around an X, the hmm. shape of an X that rises from each corner hmm. and moves to each opposite corner. And I, I see that X here um, weekly, but I, but I do see it way more in the, than in the chaos of the next one. Absolutely. Right. I don't think yes, there's I, an I X there. Yes, I landscape yeah. in stasis in the earlier one. Right, right. Very interesting. I think that... Homer, of course, this iconic image shows us a different kind of Homer emerging. This is by the end of 1862. Of course, this is a representation of an imagined reality, but there is a sense in which we feel that this is based on an observed reality, whereas the previous image, I'm not sure that we would say that, of course, um, the interest in the figure, the specific interest in the figure. This is one of Homer's great images, in fact. And 
very popular at the time. These are northern images. They will show us that federals get buried first. They are reassuring, despite their immense disturbing quality for the northern home front and their immense, the immense interest they cause, they are nevertheless attempts, they embed an attempt to be reassuring about burial. Burial will occur for federals. And these are the stunning images that we see as primarily iconic of the war. Did people at the time see these as iconic of the war? That's another question for you all to discuss during the week, to think about the visual landscape of during the war itself, how many people saw these images, to what extent these are the most iconic for people at the time, and to what extent they have become the most iconic images of the violence and destruction of war. You all no doubt already know about the rearranging of bodies by photographers attached to the Brady Studio and others on the field. These images are all lifted from the Library of Congress, and some of you are experts on Alexander Gardner. And we have the relationship to the gun <laughs> finally emerging uh, in full, not full force. We don't see the, the result, but we have the relationship to the gun more clearly articulated. Yes, please. It seems like now Sarah. we finally have the soldier as killer. Yeah. So even and a study of the soldier's killer, whereas before he was among many or dreaming of home, now right, right. This is a very clear evocation. And then, of course, to continue with my theme of a crisis in meaning for this part of this talk today, I think that the when we after Antietam after Fredericksburg, after those two major battles in the fall of 1862, a Union victory that resulted in the Emancipation Proclamation for Antietam, but a harvest of death, as some of the, the uh, image makers say. And I think that the vision of bodies that occurs in the photography of the war right at the end of 1862 is at the heart of an emerging crisis in the meaning of the war. Both the, both the fact of the deaths of soldiers that is finally hitting the home front, the realization in full in the fall of 1862 of the horrific death toll of the war, which as you all know resulted in, in fact people are upping the numbers these days, but at least 620,000 now people are saying more like 750 uh, in revised scholarship. But these images, and of course, are, are part of what, in my view, create a crisis of meaning. These images and the reality attached of these damaged bodies, they are at the heart of what do we do to create the meaning of the war? How do you parse, how do you make sense of the magnitude of those damaged, wounded bodies. This is later. Um, just throwing in a few more that are images of the dead later in the war. That is one of the more famous images that reveals the fact that black soldiers or contrabands, quote unquote, 
would have been detailed in these burial parties. Mm -hmm. Keep it's going. No, no, this one. It's interesting to me that you have the four men, it was, right? And if you just quickly look at the, the implements they're using, I mean, to us, it, it's clear that they're shovels, but it has that quick, if you first look at it, it's like hose and, and the way that slates are often represented just doing and so it's kind of interesting that it replicates this you know, tending of the earth or interaction with the earth, um, but in this totally different context um, and purpose and everything, but it's a, a symbolic representation that is quite similar. And I think that's an important point, too, because we, should, we need to always be attentive to what images of African Americans exist doing what in the war. Um, we rarely have images of African-American soldiers in any kind of brave individual stance. Uh, so, that, so this attracts the photographer who sets up this image in a particular way, partly probably because of the agricultural resonances here. I think you're onto something for sure. Any other comments before we move on at the moment? So my larger point is quite simple, that the scale of death by the middle of the war created a crisis in meaning. We see a lot of images of hospitals at this time, too, emerging. And those, I think, also can be at least in part thought of as a form of reassurance for, I'm thinking about the North today, but for the North and the, what happens to the bodies of loved folk when they are wounded in battle. So there are numerous hospital scenes that emerge, and it's at this point in the war, in the middle of the war, that we also increasingly get a celebration of women as they emerge into nursing and have finally sort of squelched the doubters who thought women should not be nurses during the war. Instead, we see these, again, somewhat propagandistic celebrations of women nursing in the war. We should say, though, that we know from scholars like Jane Schultz and others that most nurses, what we would call nurses during the war, were African-American, and they are never depicted. Uh, they weren't called nurses either at the time. They weren't given that title, but that's the work they were doing, and we don't see them. Uh, instead, the heroization of women always involves white women who are depicted as nurses. So this is one way of dealing visually with the crisis of what happens to loved ones away at the front. We, the Harper's Weekly and other popular magazines, such as um, Frank Leslie's, portray women helping to take care of wounded men, reassuring those people on the home front that though their sons or their husbands or their brothers were away from home, that they were receiving the care of home. Again, a form of a way of linking home front and battlefront that we see imagistically, uh, and this is pretty late actually, in April 9th, 1864. <laughs> I'm interested, a lot of you deal with literature, and I'm certainly interested in the ways in which Whitman attempted to deal with the crisis of meaning involving this extraordinary toll of death in the war. And one of my favorite poems of Whitman's during the war is, and I'd like us to read it, a sight in uh, camp, a sight at daybreak in camp. I'm mangling the title, but we'll get there in a second. And 
Whitman carried a little leather diary with him as he was himself a visitor, a hospital visitor, a nurse in Washington. Here is a page from one of his notebooks. And I want to recover the fact that even for us, the visual culture of the war, we want to think about print. We want to absorb it all, right? Print is part of the visual culture, or writing should be part of the visual culture of the war. I don't think we should segment off pictures as the visual culture. I think we need to also grab onto the literary, the textual, in some way or another. Here he says, at Antietam, there was a very large barn and farmhouse. The barn was filled with wounded, and the barnyard, something like, and the house was full as it could stick. A peaceful barn, now bloody, the fragrant hay being used to place the men on for operations. They turned the cattle out of their stalls. Just this is part of the visual, immediate visualization of the war, and I want to recover that, that gestural, the very gesture of the hand to paper observing and writing. I hope that that will be part of your visual universe this week as well. This is the poem that uh, is one of my favorites, and it is all about seeing. It is about how do we visualize the war, and it is in an attempt to make sense of death in war. I think Whitman was flummoxed by that. I think he had great difficulty figuring out how to do so. I don't think his best poems come from the Civil War, although I do think this one is very beautiful. And therefore, I'd like to spend a couple of minutes reading this. I'd, I'd ask someone to read it aloud so I can drink my water. And, <laughs> And, and then spend a little time thinking about this from this visual point of view. It's what he sees and how he makes sense of it. So do I have a, a poem reader, please? All right. A sight in camp with a daybreak gray and dim. As from my tent I emerge so early and sleepless. As slow I walk in the cool fresh air nearby the hospital tent. Three forms I see on stretchers lying, brought out their untended lying. Over each the blanket spread, ample, brownish, woolen blanket, gray and heavy blanket, folding, covering all. Curious, I halt and silent to stand. Then, with light fingers, I, from the face of the nearest, the first, just lift the blanket. Who are you, elderly man, so gaunt and groomed? well grayed hair and flesh all sunken about the eyes. Who are you, my dear comrade? Then to the second I step, and who are you, my child and darling? Who are you, sweet boy, with cheeks yet blooming? Then to the third, a face more child than old, very calm as of beautiful yellow white ivory. Young man, I think I know you. I think this face is the face of the Christ himself, dead and divine and brother of all, and here again he lies. Thank you. I would just like to open this poem up for a little discussion, please. Um, what is he doing? What do you notice about it? What would you want your students to notice about this if you were to assign it? Yes, start us off. Susan. Uh, this is one of my favorite poems, too. Um, and I, I think 
what strikes me is at the beginning, aligning the death of the soldiers with nature, and by the end, aligning the death of the soldiers with the sacrament, with the redemptive um, narrative. Because at the beginning, you see the gray and dim covering over the campsite, the whole war aligned at the end of the same stanza with the gray and heavy blanket covering all. So there it's contextualizing it as a part of, of nature and putting it in terms of the gray and dim is not at the end of the day, but at the beginning of the day. So a brighter um, scene will naturally flow from it and then by the end, um, translating it simultaneously into the redemptive narrative of the sacrifice uh, to erase the sin of the whole. Um, so I mean that just just what it does with those the the, the double bracket um, represents to me two different ways of naturalizing or kind of drawing upon existing schema of meaning to accommodate and absorb this crisis of meaning. You see him grasping that. Very nice. Yeah, yeah, that really, really sketches that arc beautifully, don't you think? Yes. The thing that strikes me in relationship to the, the photographs of the casualties yes. is this um, crisis about anonymity. Right. So he encounters these people, but he doesn't know who they are. So there is this visual connection and there's a visual relationship that begins, but it's not linked to any known identity. And I remember, I don't remember who had said this at some point, but that in looking at some of the Civil War <coughs> cavalry photographs, that people would be shocked by the fact that they were unnamed. Yes, And that yes. that would be terribly upsetting. Yes, that's such a good point. And I think that the, this is part of the larger, I'm glad you raised that more, the, the, it is part of, part of the larger crisis of meaning, the, anonym, the necessary anonymity of death that Americans did not understand at the out, outset of the Civil War, that there would be anonymous deaths. And the ex expectation, as many of you know from books like Drew Gilpin Faust's uh, and others, that that there was an expectation very much embedded in Victorian culture, indeed we still have it, that one should be allowed a good death. And the good death involved being surrounded by family, having a chance to repent or to make one's peace, having a minister there, etc. Having a chance to say one's last words and to have someone record them. There are many elements that are really schematic and we still have most of them, I think, of what we would consider a good death. That was not an option. So Whitman is, uh, again, this is cultural work of creating, in a sense, cre doing, doing the work of creating something that's not a good death. These are already dead, but allowing us as readers to do so. And the, the closeness, the way we're invited in as readers to, at the, then with light fingers, I from the face of the nearest, the first just lift the blanket. This is such a visualization. We're, we're all there, right? I and mean, we lift, it's very purposeful. We lift the blanket with him. We, so, Tony. And I'm, I'm wondering that this is a transcendental Whitman, and he, you know, this comes from a book that has seven or eight iterations. And it's one of a series of bivouac and camp poems. Um, there's Camps of Green, mm -hmm. where there's this misprison thing where you're, you don't know what you're looking at and then you realize mm -hmm. they're all tombstones. Um, or it's the grass, the wild uncut hair of graves and all that. Yeah. It's that Whitman. Um, 
the manuscript page, is that from the Walt Whitman archives? Is that where you got the image of the page? Of the, oh, the page? Of, of um, the actual Whitman writing? You know, I don't remember whether it's Library of Congress or the Huntington. Um, just throwing out um, but that I, reference, the Walt Whitman archive is, is a really great reference for anybody who wants to see him in particular struggling with what the war means and changing his mind because he turns on it. You get the horrible arm dropping into a bucket. I'm, I'm slaughtering the language, but so did he though in many of his poems. So, <laughs> but you have him taking. They have there various iterations of the same Whitman poem where he his vision of what war is gets much darker. Yeah, he isn't the same transcendental. So one of my reasons for bringing this or presenting this is also to think about sight in literature, not, not to only think about visual images, but to also reintegrate what we think about visual images back into our approach to the, the word. I just wanted, I know you'll be going over these in great detail tomorrow, but this is the, the late Homer in the war, yeah, after the war, Prisoners from the Front, 1866. As many of you know, and I guess you'll be going to the Met this week, this is at the Met, so you have an enormous treat, it seems to me. This is one of the great Winslow Homer paintings in the newly constituted American wing. So um, this is based... These images, which I think that the soldier on the right is the closest to those early Harper's Weekly images that are kind of flat and slightly affectless, um, stereotypic. I'm not sure what words to use. But the, the other two images are so immensely individualized. I think that's one thing we see happening with Homer during the war is a sense of its individual impact. Yeah. <laughs> um, this is, he's basing this on the real Harvard-educated and pretty crazy general, Brigadier General Francis Channing Barlow. Those of you who know your, your war stories, here is a photograph of Barlow, General Barlow, who looks about 10. <laughs> and of course, so many Civil War generals were quite young. I thought this was an interesting photo to show you in um, addition to the painting by Homer because it shows a similar kind of scene. You can see that the Confederate soldiers, the prisoners at Fairfax Courthouse, they're in a variety of clothing. They're not in one set of uniforms, much as is true we see here in this um, famous image as well. Uniforms have given way to something else. And finally, just a brief glimpse. No doubt you'll discuss this at much greater length. But this, and here I defer to Sarah, I think this just amazingly allegorical, symbolic, such an interesting image, the veteran in a new field. There's an embedded joke, in a sense, right? But he has a scythe. Uh, he's, he's been a killer, the scythe of death. And I think this is a very 
subtle image. I think it, year after year when I look at this, I started thinking this was the simplest image in the universe, and I now think it's one of the most profound uh, from the war after years of looking at it. But I, I'll be hard-pressed to say all the reasons why. But I think that the depths of meaning in the war are here in, in this image. Looked at that way, this is, you know, on the one, one hand, it's an image of life and a celebration of life, but it's an image of death as well. So far, I've been concentrating on a crisis of meaning and, and just thinking in a beginning way about how visual artists cope with that. Then I want to raise the question twice and involving issues of race about how transformative the Civil War is or isn't for a visual universe surrounding issues of race. So I want to quickly think about how revolutionary or not this image is, a very popular image that obviously would not have existed in 1861, could not have existed until mid-1862, especially then later, 1863, when um, regiments like the 54th Massachusetts were formed. And so for northern African-American soldiers, I first want to concentrate on thinking about transformations of images for northern African-American men, and then to think a little bit, conclude with a, a little swift survey of images, thinking about contrabands and thinking about the visual universe surrounding contrabands. So we'll just go quickly through these. This is, I think, a revolutionary image. It's static. It's stereotypic, I get that, but nevertheless, politically speaking, it's quite revolutionary at this point in the war to have heroism associated with the colored volunteer, as Courier Knives names this, this particular print. But I think once it was recognized and to more or less supported that African Americans should be allowed to enlist, to volunteer in the army, then I think there is a different kind of propagandistic task that is faced by a variety of publications, how to make that palatable to a racist northern white audience, and what tools to use. This, of course, uses a, a sort of heroic imaginary. There, he's got his hand on the gun. That's an important, as we've been thinking about, whether you... Imagine a soldier as a killer or a potential killer involves that gun. I think that African-American soldiers themselves took control as much as possible of images of themselves through daguerreotypes, through portraits. Lewis Douglas, the son of Frederick Douglas, enlisted in the 54th, and there are numerous images of soldiers who enlisted in the 54th they are proud, upright images of soldiers who take on the heroic attributes that have already been established in um, daguerreotypes of white soldiers. I also, so we'll look at a few of those very fast. I also think that, that we, again, I'm, I want to make the plea that we think about words as part of the, our visual landscape. So the recruiting posters that were made for and by the 54th Regiment are pretty darn interesting. In the interest of time, I'm not going to read this, but this is a, a very interesting, I think, to see what the words actually say. Um, now or never, 
fail now and our race is doomed. So broadsides are part of the important visual landscape of the war, and they're part of what Peter Fritchie and others have talked about, cityscapes of words, visual landscapes of words that are very important during the Civil War. When we get back to magazines like Harper's Weekly and the way in which they started to imagine African-American soldiers, we see a real wobbliness in terms of the kinds of representations, the, what, what we see as heroism or not, the racist depictions of faces, how I think that there's a real liminality, a real wobbliness in magazines in the middle of the war in the way in which they're representing African-American soldiers, but they are representing them. This is also revolutionary in my view that, that Harper's Weekly is showing us a Negro regiment in action telling its readers that these will be heroes on the battlefield. These are men whom you can trust to fight for the nation with all their life. Less, this is back to the sort of gallant charge <laughs> type style, a courier in Ives. This is actually the gallant charge of the 54th Massachusetts at Fort Wagner. Of course, we know this battle looked nothing whatsoever like this. But it is interesting to me that Courier and Ives had a representation to commemorate that battle at all, in which this is actually the site of the battle. So we've created a lovely green net, uh, grassy knoll. It's you know interesting to toggle back and forth between the landscape on which it actually occurred and, and the imagination of the perfect battle and heroism. I threw this in just to remind us that this is where Robert Gould Shaw was killed. And with another part of the visual aspect of the war are these lists of the missing and the dead. Let us not forget that those also compose part of the visual universe. Um, these are some of the daguerreotypes of the 54th Massachusetts. And the heroic stances that they take on, the seriousness of purpose with which they imagine and represent themselves as they are daguerreotyped are, I think, revolutionary. How long? That's a question I throw out to you. You'll know by the end of two weeks. But uh, How transformative are these images? But I throw these out to you. These are um, housed at Harvard. That You can access them easily, and of course you'll get my PowerPoint. I think these are striking images of a new African-American assertion of manhood. So finally, I wanted to conclude with some images of contrabands, which I think are quite interesting. Here we have an artist at the front, one of the, the major artists at the front, Alfred Wad, who's an artist for news magazines. And he is recording a sketch. I mean, this is as close as we can get, in my view. And I'm thinking like a historian here, uh, which is not necessarily a good thing. But uh, to me, it's as close as we can get to visualizing what Wad was seeing. I mean, it's a sketch. It's right at the time. It's hastily done. These are people talking to northern, their northern officials that they're talking to. Contrabands at Newport News, 1861, when the whole contraband issue of slaves freeing themselves by coming into union lines, of course, became this uh, in July and then following a, an enormous wartime issue. Here's a slight enlargement of the same little scene, which I find so evocative as a sketch. 
and contrast this to the sort of celebration across northern culture within the ephemera of culture, there were so many patriotic envelopes produced in the first months of war. And with and there was a celebration among northerners of the fact that contrabands, quote unquote, people were freeing themselves and moving into union lines. But the obvious racism of these images is is clear to us. There's it's not a celebration of the humanity of these people. It's a celebration of the notion that the North was taking something away from the South. Here we, and here we have this evoked very explicitly. Come back here, you black rascal, says the slave owner on the left. This, again, a, a contraband envelope. There are hundreds of these. Can't come back, no how, Massa. This child's contraband. So a celebration of the Union aims at this point. So a reminder that we want to look at ephemera as, a, as one of the locations where images of the war are produced. And a reminder, too, that the celebration of contrabands coming into union lines carries all kinds of levels of racism as it's depicted in northern culture. Here we have dark artillery or how to make the contrabands useful, an editorial cartoon from October of 1861 in Frank Leslie's. But then we get the astonishing array of photographs and images of contrabands produced during the war itself by northern photographers deeply curious about what they were seeing. But there's a clear exoticization, it seems to me, to use some of the thinking of someone like Laura Wexler, who's wonderful to read, I think, on such photographs. It seems to me that these the men in front, my guess is they have been arranged. They've been told to lie that way. It might even be a joke in the sense that there were many, many photographs at the time which were of sports, etc., that were um, figured in this way. Here's a, a close-up a bit more. These are, I think, the most haunting images of the war for me. We also have Timothy O'Sullivan for the a vision of fugitive slaves in the act of their escape from slavery, freeing themselves. Here's fording the Rappahannock River, August 1862. These are available at the Library of Congress. They bear a lot of looking at. And then this is Edwin Forbes, one of the, again, a major artist of the war for the news magazines. This is November 8, 1863, as you can see. And what I find fascinating about this image is what it tells us about gender as images are reproduced in the North. So take a close look at this. Look at the left with the woman who is carrying not only a bundle, but a child on her shoulders. She leads the group into freedom in Edwin Forbes's drawing. He sends the drawing North to be reproduced for a magazine. Here is a um, enlargement of that. But look at what actually appears in, <laughs> in the magazine. The woman has been entirely excised, which has everything to do with our excision of African-American women from the history of the war itself anyway. They, we see a lot of images of heroic black manhood during the war, but we do not see many images of heroic, if any, I challenge you, I hope people have things to say or to find, 
that disprove this, but we do not see images of heroic black womanhood being articulated so much during the war. So this excision, I think, has everything to do with the way in which ideas of gender and race intersect at the time of the Civil War. Here are other photographs that we have, um, again, because of this recording, in the desire to record the institution of slavery. We have some of these fascinating. We don't get individuals, though, in these photographs. These are these large groups. What do we make of that? Another question to pose for you. A close-up of that image at Beaufort, five generations, a very famous image. Many of you use this, I have no doubt. <laughs> you've seen now the sketches, you've seen the photos. Take a look at how contrabands coming into our lines under the proclamation. Take a look at how they are represented within the large news weeklies. This is all about thanking the great white deliverers. The, the image is telling a story that the other, the sketch, and the photographs, they don't tell the, this story of gratitude to the Union officers on the right. So this is falling back into those stereotypic notions that we see in abolitionist images and elsewhere of gratitude, uh, African-American gratitude for being liberated. Similarly, many images of black soldiers, especially if it's contrabands, um, who are then recruited as soldiers in the South, are shown being taught by a white officer to allay fears, racial fears, it seems to me. This is an interesting image, I think, from Frank Leslie's of um, the first South Carolina colored volunteers. Very wobbly image. If you look at it up, up close, and I'm sure you will at some point, we have both forms of heroic manhood and kind of images straight out of minstrelsy in terms of physiognomy, what Josh was talking about with physiognomy. And then we have the whole sort of visual culture of transformation that is attached to contrabands for the war. This is a very famous triptych from Harper's Weekly. We have Gordon as he entered our lines as a slave in his rags, Gordon under medical inspection. There's a sort of voyeuristic, pornographic interest in the, the back of this man. And then Gordon as a soldier. It's a transformation image, but as Kirk... And Kirk Savage is coming this week, right? As he... No, sadly. Anyway, as he has argued in some of his work, this is, a, is not a full transformation. The fact that it focuses on the injured back of the former slave... Um, doesn't allow us to feel a full transformation into the manhood of the soldier. The, the image of the slave is kept up to uppermost in that central image, and I think that's a really interesting point that Savage makes. And then finally, almost finally, I'm sorry I'm running over, uh, a bit of history, the contraband, the recruit, this is exactly the image, right, that we were, yeah, yeah. This is Thomas Waterman Wood, 1865, same idea, right? We have this transformation, the contraband, the recruit, but then we have the damaged body. Uh, that's interesting, too. And for me, even more interesting than wood, and I guess you'll have a chance to really take time to look at the wood at, at the Met, which is fantastic, 
the way in which the damaged body figures into the ability to articulate and accept heroic manhood. It, it seems a piece of it, as opposed to what, oh God, I've forgotten your name, but that interesting point you were making about how damaged, uh, the relationship to, yeah, yes, <laughs> to damaged bodies. Um, here is a trade card that su- supposedly celebrates black manhood in the war, black soldiering, but what I've always found the most interesting in my cynical way is that at the end he's dead. And uh, I've thought that a lot of Northern culture was obsessed with articulating black manhood and then getting rid of it visually. So make way for liberty, here's the heroic black soldier, victory, but he's dying at that moment and he died for me, for Columbia. We see a lot of that in the literature of the war and in visual images of the war. So one question then that I leave among many questions is how transformative in terms of an articulation of heroic manhood for African Americans is the Civil War? Is there a sort of regression in images? And it's a real question mark, it seems to me, in all of the images that you'll be looking at. So I'll stop there, and thank you. Thank you, Anna.